Well, amen, amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I'm sure that you do, would you take them out, please, and go to the New Testament book of Acts. We are going to be in Acts chapter 6 this morning as we are in our sermon series that has a rather boring title, The Unstoppable Church. That's what we're looking at uh, this fall as we are continuing our way uh, through the book of Acts that we actually started in uh, the spring of this year, and then we took a break uh, from Acts during the summer, but we picked it back up uh, last week, and we are in this uh, series on the book of Acts where we're just studying the early church finding out what was going on in the early church and wondering if we can be like the early church as, as well. And so we come to Acts chapter 6 this morning, and what we see in Acts chapter 6 is a problem. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever heard, seen, or experienced a problem in the life of a church? Can I see your hand go up in the air? Absolutely, some of you are lying because uh, there's problems in the churches, amen? There are problems in the churches. We've seen them. We've experienced them. Believe it or not, when I was 25 years old and I was a student pastor, um, I was a part of a church that went through the ever-popular, everybody wants to go through a church split. <laughs> Been there, done that, marked that off the list, but... But church problems, and in Acts chapter 6, we come up to a church problem. And as I was preparing for this message this week, I was reminded of the story of a pastor um, who was having a conversation with his finance committee. Uh, the pastor was asking for a raise, and the finance committee and the finance committee chairman were talking, and the chairman came back to the pastor and said, Pastor, we just got to let you know, we're, we're very sorry, but we've decided that we can't give you a raise next year. And the pastor said, but no, 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 you, you have to give me a raise. I'm, I'm nothing but a poor preacher. To which the chairman said, we know. <laughs> we hear you every Sunday, and that's why you're not getting a raise. Well, I would say that's a problem. But problems, <clears throat> we've all had them. <clears throat> we've all seen them. We've all experienced them. And sadly, we see them in the life of the church as well. Amen. Now, before we dive into Acts 6, I want to give you just four general statements about problems that are applicable not only in our personal lives, but it's also applicable in a church life. But, but I want us to understand something about problems, because when it comes to problems in the life of a church, many people are just aghast at the idea that a church full of broken people can have problems. Well, let me just share four principles with you that will kind of help us through as we navigate Acts chapter 6. But number one, write this down, problems are unavoidable. Everybody in agreement with that? You can't run away from problems. It's going to happen. Um, uh, Jesus does not say, um, if you have problems, but what does Jesus say? When you have uh, problems. He says, and the New Testament talks about you're going to have problems. You're going to have things that come your way. Jesus said in John chapter 16 verse 33, he said this, in this world you will have, anybody know what's next? Trouble. You will have trouble. Everybody take your left hand and put it, put it somewhere right under here on the side of your neck. 
and see if you can kind of feel something pulsing. Anybody feel that? That's called a pulse. Do you know what that means? You got problems. That's what that means. Listen, problems are unavoidable. Here's what else we know just in general about problems. Problems are unpredictable. You and I don't know when problems are going to show up. Amen? They just show up whenever they want to. Uh, you don't always anticipate a flat tire driving to work in the morning, do you? But they happen. You don't always expect that phone call that comes from the doctor or a relative or a friend. You don't expect that to happen when you wake up in the morning, but guess what? They happen. We just don't know when they're going to happen, but we do know that they are going to happen. And so not only are problems unavoidable, not only unpredictable, here's one I think you can all agree with is this. There are different kinds of problems. Amen? There's different kinds of problems. There are big problems, there's little problems, there, there's small problems, there's medium problems, there's all different kinds of problems. Uh, well, Jesus' brother, whose name is James, in James chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4, he talks a lot about problems. But in James chapter 1, verse 2, James says this, Consider it all joy. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Now here's what's interesting when James talks about various trials. That word various in the Greek, it literally means multicolored. How many of you have ever tried to match paint colors? That's not an easy thing to do, right? So this week I went into Lowe's.com and I typed in paint. And here's a selection of primary colors showed up on the screen. I selected a primary color, blue, and then a next screen showed up and it said, choose the hue. Okay, there were about 20 hues of blue. And whenever you click on a certain hue, another screen popped up with 50 colors of blue underneath, underneath that hue. Folks, I stopped counting at 500 different colors of blue. That's a lot of colors. But the point is, when James says there are various trials, there's about as that many, 500 or so problems that go on in our lives. Can I get an amen on that? There are problems that come our way. We don't know what they are all the time, but they come in different shapes, forms, and sizes. And here's the last thing, and this will drive us right into Acts chapter 6. Problems have a purpose. I think that's one thing we need to understand. Problems have a purpose. Uh, Paul would write in Romans chapter 5, he writes, he writes these words. He says, we boast in our afflictions. Uh, afflictions means trials. It's when James says, consider it all joy because of the things that we go through. Uh, but Paul says, we boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Meaning your problems, our problems, they have a purpose. And that word endurance, you know what it means? It literally means to sit calmly under something. It means to remain calm when problems come your way. It means we all have problems. Your problems have a purpose, but here's what you do. You don't flinch. You don't flinch. 
Because why? You have problems. Everybody's got them. But, but problems have a purpose to, to reveal what's inside of you. Paul would say in Romans 5, 4, he would say this, endurance produces proven character. Whenever you and I go through a problem, you know what it does? It shows what's going on where? It shows what's going on in the inside. That's a biblical principle, that whenever problems come, it's going to show you what's on, going on on the inside. And Paul says, problems reveal your character. Well, what type of character did the early church have? If we're looking at the early church, and we're trying to be the unstoppable church that we see in Acts, there's a problem in Acts chapter 6. What is being revealed about the character of that early church? Well, Acts chapter 6. Here we see, beginning in verse number 1, we see a major problem within the church. But as the great theologian Vanilla Ice says, <laughs> in his one-hit wonder, Ice Ice Baby, if there's a problem... Yo, I'll solve it. If you're around the age of 50, you understand what I'm talking about. Well, let's see what the church does. Verse number one. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number. Why don't you stop there for just a second. Whenever you read and study scripture, and you come across an expression of time, here's what you need to do. You need to stop. Collaborate and ice is back with a. All right, here we go. Sorry, that was just a terrible thought that came to my mind. That was horrible. Um, <laughs> stupid. Whenever you read scripture and you come to an expression of time, you want to pause. <laughs> because here's what expressions of times do. Now remember, who's the author of scripture? Say the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. It's God through the pen of mankind. Are you with me? So if God, the Holy Spirit, through the pen of man, puts in here an expression of time, we need to figure out what's going on. So Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, he writes, now at this time, he's telling us something. He's telling us that this is a sequence of events, so that when we read Acts chapter 6, we need to understand what went on before it, so that we can understand what's going on here and in the following few verses or chapters. And so what is the purpose of Luke when he writes uh, the book of Acts, and especially Acts 6 and further? Well, just remember, the goal of Luke is to talk about the unstoppable church, that the church grows. We see dramatic growth in the early church. Acts chapter 1, Jesus says to his disciples um, that, that, that we will be his witnesses in all Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and uttermost parts of the world when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Acts chapter 2, what happens? Holy Spirit comes. It's called on the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. The disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter stands up and speaks and shares the gospel. And everybody hears the gospel in their own language. And then it says this, that thousands 
gave their lives and became believers of Jesus on the day of Pentecost. So on the first day of the early church, massive growth, 120 to 300, just like that. Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are on their way to a prayer meeting, and they see a lame man, and they say to this lame man, get up and walk. This lame man is healed. Then all of these people gather around, and Peter and John again share the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4, the gospel is shared. People accept the gospel message. By the end of chapter 4, there's over 5,000 believers of Jesus Christ, but then something begins to happen. Persecution shows up. So you see growth, and you see persecution, so you get this idea that something in the spiritual realm is wanting to stop the growth. And so the early attack against the early church was outside persecution. Well, Peter and John, they're arrested. They're told not to preach in the name of Jesus, and Peter says this, no way, Jose, we're going to preach Jesus. I really don't care what you have to say. Amen? And strangely, the leaders let them go. Acts chapter 5 comes around, and then we see and we read this really strange story of a husband and wife by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. What did they do? They lied. They lied to the Holy Spirit, and they lied to the people of God. And what happened? They got a little slap on the hand, right? No. Dead on the spot. What's, what's God doing? He's purifying the church. We're a holy people. There's to be no unholiness in us. We are holy. And you don't lie to the Holy Spirit. Well, Acts 5 continues on. The disciples continue to preach. Persecution shows up. They're told not to preach again. The disciples said, no, we're going to do it. We're going to obey God more than we will obey man. And so the leaders of the day said, fine, well, we're going to beat you. And for the first time, the early church is physically whipped. Now, we're talking just a mere weeks and months after after Pentecost. I mean, early on, the believers in Jesus Christ, they are beaten with a whip. And you would think that would stop the church. You remember what the disciples said? They ran back home to the rest of the congregation, said this, praise God, we are suffering for Jesus. And they celebrated saying, we are so amazed that we are considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. So we get to Acts 6, and here's what we know. The church of Jesus Christ is growing. But I want you to write this down. Where there is growth, there are problems. You can probably look around in our congregation right now and see where there is growth. There are some problems, isn't there? What is it? We don't have many more seats left, do we? That's a problem. How do we handle that? So the early church in Acts chapter 6, they're experiencing growing pains. What is it? Here in Acts chapter 6, here's the growing pain. Are you ready? The devil is sowing a seed of dissension within the church. Are you with me? The devil has been trying to get them from the outside. Now it's going to be an inside job. And church, let me tell you something. In all of church history, New Testament and on, one of the greatest ways to destroy a church doesn't come from the outside. You know where it comes from? 
from the inside. Let us learn from Acts chapter 6. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So what's the problem here in the early church? There's two problems that I want to point out to you this morning. And I want you to underline these two words, the word complaint and overlooked. There are two problems in our text that we see and that Luke is telling us. And the first problem is this. There are believers who are overlooking other believers. Some scholars would say that this is the first case of, of, of there being some prejudice in the church. Can a church be prejudiced? Can a church turn its eye to a certain sect or a certain uh, people of color or of ethnicity? Have we seen that happen in the church before? Absolutely we have. Well right here, it happens pretty quick. And there's a case of prejudice here, but that word overlook, that word overlooked, it simply means that they just weren't seen. And what we see is that Hellenistic Jews were being overlooked in favor of the native Hebrews. And whether or not this was intentional or an honest mistake, the text isn't very clear on that. We don't know for sure whether it was intentional or whether it was just an honest mistake. Either way, they're being overlooked. In my opinion, this is an honest mistake. Let me give you two reasons why I believe this was an honest mistake. Number one, the church was growing so fast that the organization of the church couldn't keep up. I mean, that just happens. I mean, just weeks prior to this, um, in Acts 2, they went from 120 to 3,000. Now in Acts 6, scholars are saying they're up to 20 to maybe even 30,000 people in the church. I mean, it grew so fast that organizationally, they just couldn't keep up. Can an organization slow down growth because it's not organized? Yeah, it can. So that's, that's one reason. And the other reason why I believe this was an honest mistake was simply because of this. The early church was multi-ethnic and multicultural, and not everybody knew one another. They didn't know each other. It was, it was a large church. They just didn't, they didn't know everybody. How many remember the TV show Cheers? Remember the tagline of the song? You want to be where everybody knows your name. Well, the early church, that didn't happen. You didn't know everybody. Look at the phrase Hellenistic Jews and the native Hebrews. You see that? Let me, let me explain this to you because this is going to help us to understand this context. Y'all still with me this morning? So the Hellenistic Jews were Jews who lived outside of Jerusalem or outside of Israel. This is called the, the, the diaspora or the diaspora. Now what in the world does that mean? That means the diaspora, the diaspora, that is, that is the Jewish people who were scattered out from Jerusalem and Israel because either their country was, was um, uh, taken over or persecution taking place. And so uh, all throughout Israel's history, what did the Jewish people do? They were what? All throughout their history. Babylonian captivity, 700 BC. Uh, Second temple is destroyed right around the New Testament times. We even can go back into the 20th century in World War, what, two with Hitler. 
What happens to the Jewish people? They've been scattered. Why? Because they're being what? They're being killed. And they scatter. That's been the story of the nation of Israel. They have been on the run. But in 1948, something happened. The nation came back together. And guess what's happening now? All the people of Israel, the Jewish people, guess what they're doing? They're coming back. Guess what Jesus says about the end times? Whenever Israel starts coming back, you better what? You better get ready. Well, I see the glazed look over your eyes. You with me? So the Jews, the Hellenistic Jews, they have, they have been uh, spread out. But something happens to those who are the Hellenistic Jews. Something happens near uh, the time the father of that family is going to die. When he nears death, this Hellenistic Jewish family who does not live in Israel, they move back to Jerusalem because all good Jew wants to be buried where? In Jerusalem. This is what's happening. And so there has been a large contingency of these Hellenistic Jews who, who, are, who are Greek in their culture. They're not Jewish in culture. They're Jewish by, uh, by birth, but they understand the Greek culture. They've come back to Jerusalem because the dad wants to die in Jerusalem. He wants to be buried in Jerusalem. But guess what happens once that dad dies? Who's left to take over the family? The wife, the mom, now she is what you call a, a widow. And guess who she doesn't know? She doesn't know anybody. Because she has lived her entire life outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel. And she and her family come back to Israel when her husband is dying. And she doesn't know anybody. Is it possible for that Hellenistic widow to be overlooked. Is that possible? Absolutely it's possible. Was this intentional? I don't believe this was intentional, but I just believe sometimes that happens. When you have growth, sometimes you just, sometimes, hear me out and say this, sometimes people fall through the cracks. Do we want that to happen? No. Is that an unfortunate reality? Yeah, it is. But we don't want to be that way. Well, that's the first problem. I don't think that's the major problem here in our text. Because why? Look at back at verse number one, and here's what I believe the biggest problem. Write this down. The early church complained Verse number one. Now at this time, while the disciples are increasing in number, a what? Complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. Here's what's interesting about that word complaint. It's the Greek word gagutso. Say that with me. Perfect. Do you know what, you know what the word gagutso means? It has no meaning. Do you know that? It doesn't have a meaning because it is everybody's favorite English uh, uh, word. It is an onomatopoeia. I had to practice that one. Onomatopoeia, which means there's really not a meaning other than uh, the sound of it is the meaning. So whenever the 
the people are complaining, they are, good sir. They are murmuring underneath their voice in a deep voice, and they're just making some sounds. But here's the reality, and this is what scholars all throughout in the Greek uh, language say, but behind this complaining, gagutso, behind it, listen, is smoldering discontent. And do you find that to be the truth in complaining? That there's some type of discontent or division? Right here's the problem of the church. There's complaining going on in the midst of the people of God. Just weeks after Pentecost. Can that happen? Can that happen in a church? You have a mighty movement in God and just weeks, maybe months later, that there can be some type of complaining going on and it is going to cause division? Can believers complain about other believers? Anybody feeling a little warm under the collar right now? Are you with me? It happens. And this is what's going on in the early church. But when you begin to think about complaining, Paul writes in Philippians 2.14, he says this, you do all things without grumbling or complaining. He says, you don't do it. And you all know this. What good does complaining do? Does that help anybody? It doesn't. It doesn't help. When you complain about the weather, miraculously it changes the weather to what you want it to be. No. No, it doesn't work that way, does it? Complaining profits you nothing. And this is what's going on in the first, it's the first really controversy of the church. Well, what did the church do? Because this is a big problem. What did they do? Let me give you three things. Number one, they set the right priorities. The early church, the leadership of the church, which is the apostles at this time, they set the right priorities. Look at verse number two. So the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples. In other words, they said this, let's get together. Let's solve this problem together. We need to be here as one. We need to be united. So let's get together and let's solve this problem. And then they hear, here they go set the priorities, verse two. And they said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve uh, tables. Now, are the disciples saying that it's better to preach the word of God than, than serving the tables? They're not saying that. They're saying serving the tables are extremely important, but what they're saying is our role as apostles and as leaders, our responsibility is we've got to preach the word of God. And we have to give our time and our focus to preach the word of God, not to get away from that and to serve tables. 
They say, this is not, this isn't, we can't pull away from this. I I imagine the disciples said this. I I can, again, see Peter standing up and speaking. I don't know if it's Peter or not, but I can see Peter standing up and saying this because I believe in this whole congregation that had this problem, I believe that somebody in that congregation stood up and said, hey, I've got a great idea. Here's a problem. Let's let the apostles go solve the problem. Let's let the apostles, who are already have their plates full with studying and preaching and, and, and praying, uh, let, let's just give it to them and let's let them go take care of the problem. And I'm sure it got a second and I'm sure, yeah, that's a great idea. I can hear that being said. The reason why I, I can hear that is because that still happens a lot today. Because here's what happens. Well, there's a problem in the church a lot of times, and it comes out of a good, pure motive and pure heart. We say, Pastor, here's the problem. We want you to go and solve it. That happens. And I think those are, I believe the, the purity is there. I believe that's right. But that's not the strategy that we see that is successful in the early church. And the disciples catch this. And the disciples say, wait a minute. It would be better if we stick to what we have been called to serve to do and let's create other opportunities for other people to serve. And so they set the priorities. They're not saying that one is better than the other. What they're saying is we've got a call on our life We've got to stay preaching the word of God. We've got to commit to praying. Let's get a group of other guys who are able to do this. So the first thing that they do when you solve a problem is this. They set the right priorities. Here's number two. They selected godly men to solve the problem. Look with me in verse number three. Y'all still with me this morning? Verse number three, therefore, brothers and sisters, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Um, Scholars will say this is is, uh, the first introduction to deacons. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that topic this morning, but next week I'm going to talk about church leadership. I originally wanted to talk about this this morning, but diving into this text, there's so much more that we need to understand before we come to the deacons aspect of it. And you understand, right now, our church, we're in the middle of deacon nominations, and your Sunday small group should have received a list of names of men who meet some of the requirements for a deacon, um, and I hope that that you did receive those. If you don't have a list, let us know. If you want a list, let us know. Because here's one of the problems that we have in a church our size. You can't know everybody, right? Somebody might get overlooked. Are you with me? Are you asleep this morning? All right, I think you are. Here we go. And so the disciple said, let's choose godly men to solve the problem. And they give them three characteristic traits, or three, uh, this is how they're vetted. Number one, of good reputation. What that means is they are good witnesses. That literally means good witnesses in the church and outside the church. You gotta, be, you gotta have good character. 
full of the spirit and full of wisdom, and they have to be capable men, meaning you have character and you have a capability to get the job done. And that's what the disciples say, let's do this. Let's nominate these seven, and I love what verse number five says, it was found with approval. I love that. And so we see this problem solving. Number one, they set the right priorities. Number two, they chose godly men to, uh, to perform the task. And here's number three, the church trusted the men who are selected. Look at verse five, verse five. They trusted them. This statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, whose brother's name was Pumba. And then there's Parmenius, <laughs> and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, in verse number six. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And here's what the leadership did and said. Here's the problem. Let's come up with an idea to solve the problem. Here's the men that we have selected to the problem. And the church said this, men, you go to work. And you complete it. And you do what you need to get done. And we trust you. And it says that they laid their hands on them and prayed for them. And they said, you go do this work because we don't want anybody to be overlooked well. What was the result of this great problem solving? What's the result? Look at verse seven. And the word of God kept on spreading. You get it? The word of God kept spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. So here we had this great big problem of the church was overlooking some people, there was some complaining, and then uh, the, the church comes together and says, let's solve this because here's what we want. We want the problem to be solved, but we want the word of God to continue going forth. And it does. And here's the reality, and here's why the church is unstoppable. When the word of God is preached, here's the promise from scripture. You ready? It will not return void. Key phrases, when the word of God is preached, it will not return void meaning it will be prosperous. Will we always see it? Not necessarily. But it does mean this, that even though there may be problems, the word of God is bigger than any problem that you'll ever face in your life. And I know today that many of you may be going through some difficulties and that you may have problems in your life, some struggles, Struggles of different kinds, as we've already said before. But know this, God has not forgotten you. He knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly where you are. And all he wants you to do is to trust him. You trust him. In church, when problems come in our church, we trust God. Amen? 
When problems arise in, in small groups, we trust God. When problems arise in whatever, you name it, you trust God. You trust him. You trust him because why? The church is unstoppable. The church cannot be stopped. You can say something like this, well, pastor, what about all those churches that close their doors? Well, that doesn't mean the church has stopped. It may be that one local church for a time has ended its time, but listen, the church overall, it cannot be stopped. Amen? And so what you and I do, we keep pressing forward. And we, whenever problems come, we seek to solve them in godly fashion. And here's what will happen. The word of God will continue to spread. Amen? Won't you pray with me, please? Father, we come before you today. I thank you for who you are. I thank you, O oh Father, that your word never changes. It's true. It's true no matter the age, stage, what's going on, it's always true. And Father, I pray that as we go through problems individually or corporately or our nation, our state, you name it, Father, may we put our eyes upon you and trust you. Because you're in control and you are the one who holds us in your hands. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed today. You know, there may be somebody here this morning who doesn't, who hasn't given their life to Jesus. The reason we're talking so much about the church today is because Jesus died for the church. He died for you. And he wants you to be a part of his family. And so this morning, if you have never given your life to Jesus, I pray today that you would do that. That you would just humble yourself before him. That you would confess your sins before him and then receive his mercy, his forgiveness, and his grace. And then come be a part of our family and be a part of our church. There's some of you here this morning, maybe you are going through some difficulties and, and you have some problems and you, you just need God to intervene. If that's you, you keep holding on, you keep hanging on because Jesus has got you. Oh, Father, thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.